Welcome back to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. In this episode, we're continuing a Prova education activity titled Improving Treatment for Type 2 Diabetes, Overcoming Barriers to Optimal Care. Let's return now to presenter Dr. Brian McDonough. There are psychological issues. The diagnosis of diabetes can lead to increased levels of anxiety, depressive symptoms, and lowered self-esteem. You want to monitor for signs and symptoms of anxiety, depression, and denial. I can't overestimate how important this is and how little time many of us have in our office to deal with it. Someone, when you come in to talk to them about diabetes, may say everything's fine and they really don't talk much about it. But what you have to understand is it may not be fine and they may be battling this and they're just trying to get out of the office without any more conversation. It's critical. But there are more than that to worry about as far as comorbidities. Nephropathy, chronic kidney disease, is a key issue. Diabetes is a leading cause of chronic kidney disease in developing countries and in developed countries. There's a global increase in type 2 diabetes and obesity. It's making diabetes a leading cause throughout the world, and that's important to talk about. As far as risk reduction, you want the blood pressure control and glucose control. You want an annual assessment of the urine albumin excretion from the diagnosis. You also want serum creatinine measured annually, regardless of urine albumin excretion degree. You can use urine serum creatinine measurement to estimate the glomerular filtration rate and the stage level of chronic kidney disease. Other comorbidities that we need to think about are retinopathy. Diabetes is a leading cause of blindness. You want to optimize blood pressure and glucose control, and you want to screen annually for retinopathy and vision defects. As far as foot care, this is something we can do in our office. It doesn't cost anything. We can use the monofilament test because, remember, diabetic nerve damage can impair sensation and awareness of problems. The examination should include an inspection and palpation of foot pulses, a test for loss of sensation with a 10-gram monofilament plus 128 hertz tuning fork. You can use the pinprick reflex hammer for the ankle reflexes and the biothesomometer for vibration, perception, and threshold. You also, and this is very important and a lot of times we don't think about it, is screening for peripheral arterial disease. Most importantly, of course, keep remembering, examine annually. Now, when people come into my office, I usually do the monofilament test because it's something that I can check relatively rapidly. One of the tricks you can use in that test is actually to talk with your patient, kind of fake them, see if they feel something or if they don't feel it, and then um, see if they're really accurately telling you something and not just necessarily agreeing with you because it sounds good. There are barriers to achieving glycemic goals, and there are many. A failure to adhere to lifestyle interventions, diet, and appropriately prescribed physical activity are huge. A non-adherence to medications, patient inertia, complexity of regimens. For instance, there could be multiple medications, daily dosing. Someone could be older. It's difficult for them to keep up all of those things. Medication side effects, weight gain, hypoglycemia, GI problems, all of those things are there. We've talked a little bit about the psychological issues. Denial, again, being one of the biggest problems. There are comorbidities, including cognitive impairment. As patients get older, if dementia is an issue, we have to worry about that. And also, suboptimal medical literacy. Remember, this cuts across all cultural lines, and there are many people who don't necessarily have the education to follow what we think is so simple. And when you try to discuss it with patients, they may agree with you, but they're trying to bluff you. If they don't know how to calculate or use the numbers or when you say a certain number of pills or read the label, they can run into problems. 
Now, there are other reasons for one of the big ones for not adherence is a patient's desire to not use medications or concern about side effects. Now, remember, you have a lot of bias about the medications. Hypoglycemia is a worry and a concern. There's a failure of clinicians to provide clear instructions about medication use, an inability of patients to understand physicians' instructions, and a difficulty of patients remembering the regimen. Depression is an issue, and you also have uncooperative and or irrational behavior of some patients. Some patients lack motivations or feelings, and they feel incompetent. They just don't want to deal with it. Some of the biggest factors are the patient anxiety, a lack of acceptance of type 2 diabetes as a chronic disease. They think that, yes, I have this problem, but it's getting better, and they're not that worried about it. They also may not have any symptoms. They may not feel bad. One of the biggest things we deal with in our high blood pressure patients is we feel that they, they take their medications, but then they say, I don't feel any different than I did before. They might even have a side effect from the medication. They go, why am I taking this medication? I'd rather take nothing. I felt better before I did. Well, you will face that with people with diabetes. An issue that's larger and larger, especially in our economy today, is the cost of medications. And I talked about earlier the cultural issues. And they are difficult to understand because depending on what culture we have or who we are, how familiar we are with different cultures, it can be very different. Now let's look at a few things about whether or not people want to take insulin as a treatment because clearly that is a barrier that is out there. There was a study that was done in diabetes care back in 2005. And what they found is that at least half of patients with type 2 diabetes will not readily start insulin. They looked at those who were very willing, and in a sample of over 3,800 people, they found that 24% were very willing. 23% were moderately willing. 24% were slightly willing, but 28% were unwilling. So you really do still have those barriers and problems with it. Are there reasons for noncompliance? Wow, there's lots of reasons for noncompliance. The biggest is that sometimes people forget to use or refill the medication. Some don't want the side effects. Another big one, the drugs cost too much. That's going to take up more than half the pie. But there's other things. Some people think they don't need the drug. That's 14%. Some can't get the prescription filled, picked up, or delivered. There could be barriers there. Some don't know how to use the drug. Maybe we do a poor job explaining it. And for 10%, we're not quite sure. We just know they're not, com they're not compliant. That was a sample of 10,000 people. So you've got to believe that there are issues out there in, in compliance. So what can we do about it? I mean, how can we make things better? That's what we're trying to do by working on this entire program. We're trying to say, how do we make this better for our patients using some evidence-based information and figuring it out? Well, in family practice back in 2002, they looked at certain things, and they said that patients may follow treatment regimens more readily if they involve medications rather than lifestyle changes. People actually do respond when they're given a drug, not because drugs are better, but it's harder to make lifestyle changes. You really have to be stunned to make a lifestyle change. If they perceive the disease severity as high, if you really tell them, listen, this is important, this could lead to heart attacks, you may not have kidney function, you could lose the ability to use your nerves, those kind of things are important to say. Don't be afraid to. The patients need to recognize a direct connection between the symptoms and the disease. If they see there's a symptom and they know it's caused by the disease and they don't like that symptom, that gives them a reason to treat it. They also want to believe that medications alleviate the uncomfortable symptoms and minimize the risks of hypoglycemia. Remember, one of the big barriers we have there is some people think taking the medication is going to make them be hypoglycemic when we want to tell them the concerns on the other end. You want to have people believe the regimen is simple and that it's not that complex and believe that the recommended treatment will enable them to delay or avoid complications. 
there are barriers. There's barriers in our medical system. There's barriers through physicians and healthcare providers. A failure to recognize and treat the basic pathophysiologic disturbances. A failure to diagnose and treat at early stages. How many of us maybe don't take a look or put it off? We can't afford to do that. The stakes are too high. A failure to treat to target. Remember, we're trying to treat. We should treat and be effective, not just say, oh, we'll deal with it next time. When I review residents' charts, sometimes I'll see when I go over them that there wasn't necessarily an aggressive approach. You need to stress that importance, either in your own practice, those you're teaching. There can be a delay in initiating or titrating medications and a reluctance to prescribe injectable therapies. A lot of physicians don't want to deal with the issue of injectables, and they don't want to deal with it with patients. And finally, long-time intervals between office visits. Patients will avoid you, and if you let them avoid you, they'll be very happy. Kind of got to get after them and make sure that you... Give them a reason to come back, and you work with them. There are time factors, and we're all facing that. The volume's going up. The length of the office visit's going down. 10 to 15 minutes is probably an exaggeration in today's world. We're all feeling the pressure, and there is no rescue in sight. There is a poor coordination of care. There's lots of talk now about having someone's care from the emergency room to the hospital to home. All of these things, patient-centered medical home, they're all great ideas, and I want them to work. But right now, they're not working the way they should, so there's a poor coordination of care. What about protocols? A lot of people don't know the protocols. Those of you who are taking part in this are learning protocols. You're learning evidence-based treatment, and that is critical, but not everybody does. What about team-based care? Some of us can't afford to have a dietitian in the office and all the other factors of social worker and people who can help. So you have to try to do what you can. So that's important. Reimbursement, many of the things we do in treating our diabetics are not reimbursed. We really can't bill for them, but they're otherwise very important. You can be overwhelmed with the number of guidelines. There's a lot of stuff going on out there. We're trying to simplify it and go over the big issues, but there are things you have to be concerned about. And finally, limited services are available for special populations such as the elderly and cultural groups, and I think that's important. We also have unmet needs potentially addressed by more timely initiation of insulin therapy. For instance, insulin is often not used. Actually, it's only used as a last resort in type 2 diabetes patients. How many times do you say, oh, well, we've got nothing left. We're going to use insulin. That's a problem. But, you know, it is the most effective antihyperglycemic agent, and we need to stress that. We just can't say, oh, we're off to insulin now. We should think about it and getting involved with insulin earlier if necessarily. It is the only therapy that can be continually titrated to reduce blood glucose. It can be matched to individual needs, and that's a very important factor. It can allow for flexible meal planning and food choice. Again, though, you have to have someone who's educated, someone who's working with you. That's very important. And it will be required eventually by most type 2 diabetes mellitus patients if they have diabetes long enough. The barrier, a big one, hypoglycemia. That's a barrier to glycemic control in patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus. It's an important limiting factor in management, and it may be a significant barrier to treatment adherence. A fear of hypoglycemia, I've said it again and again, is a barrier to control. A study in patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus showed increased fear of hypoglycemia as the number of mild, moderate, and severe hypoglycemic events increased. As more and more times it happened, there is a fear, and that's a concern. And, of course, insulin use is integral to the fear of hypoglycemia in patients. What about unmet needs potentially addressed by the incretin-related treatments? You have improved glycemia with weight maintenance or loss, low risk for hypoglycemia, low risk for edema, that's a big issue, reduction of postprandial hyperglycemia, 
a potential to reduce glycemic fluctuations, and a potential for more durable, long-term glycemic control if incretin effects in animals are found with incretin-related therapy in man. So that potential is there. So let's recap the learning objectives. I know we've talked a lot, but this is very important information. As clinicians, we all need to become more aware of the national guidelines on management for type 2 diabetes mellitus, inclusive of glycemic control and recommended lifestyle, exercise, and nutritional changes. We want to more confidently set appropriate glycemic targets for patients in their clinical practices by employing validated treatment strategies that focus on achieving optimized outcomes for each patient. We want to adhere to screening, prevention, and treatment guidelines for comorbidities common to patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus. And we want to develop customized strategies to ensure greater patient compliance through patient education that overcomes barriers to medication adherence and self-care. So in summary, diabetes continues to increase in incidence and prevalence. Many diabetic patients do not achieve treatment goals leading to increased health care utilization and costs. There are clinician, patient, and health care system barriers to achieving optimal treatment goals. Improved adherence to medication and lifestyle goals can positively impact type 2 diabetes mellitus outcomes, and resources exist to help address these barriers for both physicians and patients alike. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. I've been glad to talk with you about this. We are all in this battle together, and it is something that is not going to go away. It's something that we really need to address and gain control of, and hopefully this program, this particular talk, has given you an opportunity to look at some of the key issues and make sense of them, because I know it can be overwhelming, but the bottom line here is the stakes are too high to fail. Thank you very much. You have been listening to a Prova Education Activity presented on ReachMD's series, Grand Rounds Nation. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of the nation's best Grand Rounds. Until then, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thanks for listening.